All right. Well, we'll begin with prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the freedom to gather together to learn more about you through your word. Um, today we have heavy hearts thinking of Bill Lindsay, Lord, and we pray for Bill's healing. Uh, we pray for peace to be upon the family. We pray, Lord, for stamina and peace and your sense of uh, the promises of God to be upon them, Lord. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, be with them during this difficult time period. And today, as we look at your word, Lord, give us clarity of thought so that we may focus on your promises and know that the best is yet to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, everyone, remember we left off on this slide. We were on this slide, I think, for about an hour. And I promise you we'll get off it. I just want to remind you where we were a couple of weeks ago prior to the snowstorm. We were talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb as a believer, and all believers are, you're blessed and you cannot be cursed. We looked at the fact that because believers are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we can have our wedding clothes on so that we are fit to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But we also looked at the fact that the wedding clothes that the saints have that they're dressed in also symbolizes their good works. And we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. Well, then remember we talked about the significance of the marriage supper of the Lamb and how the day of the Lord is really a rehearsal dinner for that future banquet. And then we talked about Bob's article a little bit that he wrote called Dining with the King. Has, anybody, uh, has everybody read that in here? Dining with the King. Several have, I know. Please read that if you get an opportunity because it unpacks this idea of mishta. Mishta is an Old Testament concept of banquet. And it goes all the way through the Old Testament, even into the New, where at a banquet you have a reversal. Some are going to be judged and some are going to be saved. Some are cursed, some are blessed. And you see that go all the way through the Bible, and it culminates at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's where we left off last time. Now today, as we finish this PowerPoint here in verse 10, we look at some, I think, fairly important theology. And that is we see that it is only right to worship God alone. And what's very interesting is you're going to see an angel being worshipped, and when he, John worships him, we learn that it's not right to worship any created being, but it's God alone. And we're going to see how Jesus being worshipped then demonstrates his divine nature. Now, Revelation 19.10, it says, Then I, this is John, fell at his, remember that's the angel's feet, to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, dear ones, notice here, John is trying to worship this angel. The angel forbids it. Why? Because the only one who is worthy of worship, the only one that we should worship is God alone. Now, I want to make the connection here. We should see that Jesus is rightly worshipped. And because he's rightly worshipped, think of the syllogism. Only God is worshipped. Jesus is worshipped. Therefore, Jesus is God. Okay, that would be a fair syllogism. I think it would be both valid and true. Therefore, it's a sound argument. Okay, so who had the Philippians 2, 9 through 11? I think Brian had that. And before you read it, Brian, have everyone turn your Bibles to Philippians 2, 9 through 11. I want you to see this connection 
to every knee bowing one day and worshiping the Lord Jesus. So we see that, yes, he really is a valid object of worship, therefore he must be God. So Philippians 2, 9 through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that... Will, and, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. So every knee is going to bow and worship him, and every tongue is going to confess. And what's very interesting, this is all going to happen at the end of time. And so what's interesting for believers, you and I are those who bow the knee now and worship the Lord now. But the unregenerate are also going to have to do that at the end of time. Every knee will bow. And every tongue confess and acknowledge that he really is Lord. So that's worship of Jesus Christ. Now, Brian, I also gave you Isaiah 45, 23. And if you just stop for a moment, have everyone turn to Isaiah 45, 23. The reason I want you to turn there is I want you to make the connection between Philippians 2, 9 through 11 that we just read, and Isaiah 45, 23. Because Paul was taking the words that he penned in Philippians 2 that we just read. He's taking that from Isaiah 45. And in Isaiah 45, the knee bowing and the tongue confessing was to Yahweh. So that shows you that Jesus is Yahweh. All right, go ahead, Brian. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Yeah, right there. So that was Yahweh speaking through the prophet. So in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, that's attributed to Jesus. So if Yahweh, he says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess to him, and it's, it's stated also of Jesus, you can obviously see that Jesus is considered to be Yahweh. He is the eternal God. Um, other passages, I just want, you don't have to turn there, I'll just point them out. Oh, I'm sorry, Levon, you got a point or a question? Yeah. Uh, we'll get you on uh, record here. Eric's running to you right now. <laughs> Well, I'm just wondering, what exactly is the definition of worship? Um, like, the, like John bowed down to worship the angel, what, what was in his head? And like um, Peter and Cornelius, Cornelius fell down to worship. Yeah. So exactly what are they thinking? What, what is being exactly forbidden? Yeah, so it would be this desire to adore and ascribe great glory uh, to this angel that only belongs to God. So do you remember um, some weeks ago we talked about the definition of glory, and I gave you different definitions how they're used in the Bible. And one of the definitions that is ascribed to God for glory is his kavoth. That's the term glory in Hebrew, which means his weightiness. And so there's a weightiness to God that he has that doesn't belong to anyone else. And so to worship some other idol or some other human being or created being is to detract from the glory that God alone deserves. So it's part of that. Also, adoration and, and the idea of when we worship God, we're, we're extolling his goodness, his virtues, his attributes. And again, there are communicable attributes that God does communicate with us, but there are also incommunicable attributes that belong to God alone. And again, he deserves all worship because he is unique. And so this adoration, the extolling of his goodness, and the, um, the giving the weightiness that he alone deserves is something tied into worship. 
And that's why ultimately God is the one who receives worship, not anything in creation. Now, as I say that, we know that there are people who are worshiping idols today. The point is, in the last days, in the 70th week of Daniel, that'll be put down. And so when you're in the final kingdom, the millennial kingdom into the eternal states, idolatry will no longer be tolerated. It'll be done away with. And the only one who will be rightly worshipped and acknowledged to be the true God will be Jesus Christ, Yahweh, uh, our, our Trinity. Yeah. Yep. So that was a very good question. Thank you. Anybody else on that? Yeah, Bob. I think, doesn't worship mean to bow down pros Yeah, yeah. On that last phrase there, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Yeah. I think there's a genitive. Yes, we're going to talk about that, yes. Oh, we're going to talk about Yeah, absolutely. No, no, I'm glad you bring it up. We can talk about it. Well, the point of it, I used that in an article I wrote about how you discern spirits. Right. Because there's so much material out there where people want to have some sort of existential experience that they think makes them feel close to God. Yeah. And so I did some work on that. I think the Holman Christian uh, standard probably gets it right. It says yeah. testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Yeah. So Jesus is the object That's right. of the testimony. So the way we discern spirits is by whether whatever spiritual source may be claimed, are they confessing Christ? Yeah, amen, amen. I so, agree, yeah. Well, there's... Lately, I've been coming up with somebody sending me videos about historical revivals that were supposed to be so great. Yeah. And even though they're hyper-pious, one of them was from 1949. It was over in the U.K. somewhere. Yeah. They all have the same problem. Right, right. There's some, some pious people that prayed all night for many weeks, and yeah. some people figured out... God came by. Yeah, right. Okay. Right, and subjectively. sensitive to what they call the movings of God. Yeah. And, I, and, it, and it's territorial. Yeah. So here was this guy, so I was very pious, talking about the holy ground and the holy man. And they always have their version of the Vatican, really, even though it's not so glorious. Mm. There's a holy church. And they have some little old ladies that pray all night. They got their own convents and nuns. Yeah. <laughs> and it fools everybody. That's not how you discern spirits. Right. Okay? Somebody feels God. People pray all night. Thousands of people want to go to church. Some people say there's miracles greater than the apostles did. The testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. They got the same problem. Yeah. Are they preaching Christ? Amen. That's oh, right. I don't know. They talk about Jesus. But are they per- preaching Christ? Are they confessing the personal work of Christ, the blood atonement, forgiveness of sins? Yeah, amen. They're all, we're the great people of God, and we got the Holy Ghost, and we got power. Yeah, amen. It's, it's all messed up. Yeah, it is. And so this is a key verse here. It is. So if you're preaching Christ... You're not making yourself the object of worship. Right. Amen. That's right. And in fact, when we unpack this, Bob, we'll see. um, I think this, like for instance in this box, the testimony of Jesus. And we'll look at the underlines here. The testimony of Jesus, you see again, we'll talk about uh, being a plenary genitive. 
Oh, is that how you? Yeah, and I think, and I'll explain I why. Look at it for a while. Yeah, but Bob, you're right. It's it's an objective it comes genitive. From him, and it is about him. Exactly right. Yep, it's about that. So, in fact, let's hit that. Um, one thing I want to point out. You can just jot these verses down. In Matthew two eleven and Hebrews one six, Jesus receives worship in the New Testament. And I just want you to see that because again, if you tie that to Revelation, only God is to be worshipped. Jesus is worshipped. In fact, in Hebrews one six. Remember, that's where the writer of Hebrews, he cites from Psalm 97, where it says, let all the angels of God worship him. Well, that's ascribed to Jesus. So these are further references that show you Jesus is worshiped. Why? Well, because he's God. And this is something, again, we should have in our back pocket with the Jehovah Witnesses and those who deny the deity of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, just what was, what was the Matthew? Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 2.11. 2.11? Yep. And that's where, um, remember the, the narrative where you have the uh, wise men come in and they bow down and worship him. Yep. And uh, then the Hebrews 1, 6. So, yeah, very good. All right, so now let's get into what Bob has just talked about here, this idea of the testimony of Jesus. And as you can see, what Bob was pointing out is there's a genitive there, and the genitive means typically source. So here's what we have to wrestle with. When we're interpreting the Bible and it says the testimony of Jesus... We know that's a genitive construction, and it can either be a subjective genitive, meaning Jesus is the subject, and therefore he is the source of where the prophecy comes from, or it could be what's called an objective genitive. That is, the prophecy is about Jesus. Now, there's a great scholar, his name is Daniel Wallace, and he writes a Greek grammar that every seminarian ends up reading and using in their work at seminary, And he points out that we don't have to choose probably between this being a subjective and objective, and he calls it a plenary. Now, plenary just simply means both. Now, a lot of times he gets guffed for this, but I think he's probably right, and here's why. Think of this. Bob and I oftentimes when we're preaching, we'll point out purpose statements. It'll be so that, and you'll hear the purpose statement. Well, scholars argue over purpose statements. They say, no, it's not a purpose statement. It's a result clause. Well, it's really both. Because if God purposes something and ends up resulting in something. So in other words, you don't have to choose between a purpose clause and a result clause. Oftentimes, it's both. In the same way, we don't have to choose here between a subjective genitive, that is, Jesus is the ultimate source of prophecy, and an objective genitive, that it's about him. It's both. Now, let me give you some examples. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 22.20. We'll be coming to this in three chapters here. <clears throat> Revelation 22.20. Now here, notice it says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Does everyone see the term testifies? Martu rao, that's what it comes from. So here, Jesus is testifying about himself that he is coming. So he is often depicted, along with the Holy Spirit, as being the source of where prophecy comes from. And yet, if you look up the rest of the passages that talk about the testimony of Jesus, and I'll just cite them, we won't look at every one of them, but Revelation 1.1, Revelation 1.2, Revelation 1.9, Revelation 12, 17, 19, 10 here, and the, 12, the 22, 16, 
If you look at all of those, they're evenly divided. Sometimes they're subjective, sometimes they're objective. And so I think we really have to understand that Jesus is the source of prophecy, but he's also what prophecy is all about, exactly what Bob was saying. Now, let me, who had, um, someone had the Second Peter 1.20? Oh, that was Barb. Yeah, thank you, Barb. Everyone turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. I want you to see that the ultimate source of all Scripture is God. And there's a great passage in 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 that talks about this. And I want everyone to make the connection with this passage because, again, God is the source of revelation, but he's also the object of it. He's what it's about. But here we see that he's the source, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Go ahead, Barb. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Ah, amen. So first of all, notice there in verse 20 that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. There's debate in this passage. Some of your English versions will say that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of the prophet's interpretation. But I think the own's interpretation is better. Here's the issue. The issue is in first, Second Peter 1, you had false teachers who were saying Jesus isn't coming. And they felt the right that they could interpret the prophets any way they wanted. Well, notice here, Peter's saying, no, you don't have the right to interpret the prophets any way you want. Why? Because the author of Scripture is God. And so that's one thing that Bob and I have tried to pound home is the author determines the meaning of the text, not the reader. Okay, and this is a passage that I think we should turn to with postmoderns who claim that the reader defines the biblical text. Here we see no. God is the author, and therefore you're not entitled to your own interpretation. Now, in 2 Peter, the way this plays out is, remember the Mount of Transfiguration? On the Mount of Transfiguration, you had God speak from heaven, say, this is my son, listen to him. And the reason why that was so significant to Peter is you had authentication of the interpretation that they had because you had a blended quote from Psalm 2 where the Messiah has to come and rule over the nations. And so because the, pro- the apostles had the interpretation of Scripture authenticated, then the false prophets had to be wrong, that Jesus really is coming back. So that's why Peter's mentioning that here. But I want you to see, again, God is the source of all Scripture, and because he is the source, the author, we can't play fast and loose with its interpretation. We have to find authorial intent. Yes. I just want to say God's interpretation is great. Why would you want to stray? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Remember Bob was talking about uh, the, uh, pro- uh, the uh, parables. And when Jesus gives you the interpretation of the parable, it's the right one. <laughs> we don't have to go any further than what Jesus says. Yeah, Christy. Um, I've heard from postmoderns as well the argument that Jesus never spoke about such and such sin or homosexuality in particular. Yeah. And this has been sort of what I've responded with is that God is the author. The Trinity is the author of all scripture. So Jesus did speak about it quite a bit in this passage, this passage, this passage. So that's sort of one argument that they use that Jesus didn't, you know, um, condemn it. Right. He did. Absolutely. (laughs) Right. And and Christy, very good point. Um, You'll hear this argument from certain people like, let's take Brian McLaren. 
or um, another one, Jim Wallace. How many have ever heard of Jim Wallace? He's basically a communist. And what he does is he just pretends to be a Christian. But he's a communist through and through. And so what he calls himself is a red-letter Christian. Well, in the red letters in Matthew 10, Jesus says, whoever receives you to his apostles receives me. Now, Jesus says that. And his point is, if we don't receive the apostolic word, we're not receiving Jesus. So who wrote these passages that Christie's talking about, admonishing against homosexuality, for example, in 1 Corinthians, in Romans? Well, Paul was. Well, who is Paul? He's an apostle. And Jesus himself said, if you don't receive the words of the apostle, you're not receiving Christ. So here you have a whole movement that's trying to divorce themselves from divine revelation, saying, well, Jesus didn't say it. You can't get off the hook that way. If the apostle said it, Christ said it. That's how Scripture works. He is the author of Scripture. Ultimately, God is. But he moved men. He moved men to write his very words. Um, So, yeah, very good point, Christy. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, very good. Now, I just want you to see that, yes, throughout Revelation... Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, Greg, I'm sorry, I missed you. Yeah, this morning on Fox News, they said that Gentleman's Quarterly said that the Bible was the most overrated book ever. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that so? Yeah. Yeah. Trying to say the Bible? Yeah. Well, that's a stupid thing for them to do because anybody that actually studies the Bible... I know. ...will be blown away. And at the same time now, I think it's through um, Logos Software, but they have... They're showing people the actual old manuscripts... Yeah. ...that have been found. Wow. And these theories that people hundreds of years later made up the Bible are getting blown out of the water every time they dig around in the ground. Yeah. And the Qumran find was amazing that way. And so they just flat out lie. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that is sad. Wow. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, Peter. Eric, is there a verse or two in the Old Testament like Second uh, Peter 1, 19, 20, or Second uh, Timothy three sixteen? Yeah. Um, Referring to scripture as being uh, yeah, you know, one, the author of. One would be like Isaiah 55, where he talks about his word going forth and how it does not uh, come back empty. Um, there's many other passages that I, if we had time, we could probably look. I'd have to look them up. But yeah, the, the Old Testament affirms that the Navi, the Navi is the prophet. So think of every, everyone in here heard of Tanakh. You have the Torah the Navaim and the Kathavim. The Torah is the law. The Navaim is the prophets. And the Kathavim are the writings. So that's the threefold designation of Scripture. All of it was considered to come from God. Now, what's interesting is the prophet, the term Navi probably means to bubble forth. And the idea was that he was the source, the fountain from which God actually spoke. And so the very term prophet in the Old Testament denoted that he was the source from which God spoke. And so that was attested all the way through the Old Testament that these men were speaking from God. Now, we had tests to determine if they were. Remember, we saw those in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 19. There was two tests. One, if you predicted something and did not occur, you were not a valid prophet. You're a $3 bill. Number two, if you predicted something that did occur, but you violated known scripture, you led people away from the true God, then you were also a $3 bill. You weren't a true, uh, true prophet. So that was a... A theological test. And so you had to both predict the future 
but you also had to comport with what divine revelation had already given. And unless you did that, you were not a genuine prophet in Israel. Yeah. Well, the, the claim is pretty obvious, even in the you old know, Pentateuch. Uh, Moses talked to Yahweh, yeah. Sinai, in the ten words were right. written on stone by the very finger of God. Yeah, amen. Exactly. He He's the prophet of God. the Bible. But he can't say the Bible doesn't claim that it came from God. Right. It does claim that, and it's accurate in everything that it affirms, and it hasn't been overturned. Yeah, amen. The prophecies, the, the historical events, the geographical locations, yeah. the identity of the various religions that interacted with the Jews. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing that in Ephesus as they ex es excavate, they're finding things that Paul is addressing. Yeah. Artemis, Apollos. Right. The people that were ruling. It's insane to claim the Bible is false or doesn't claim to be from God. The only thing you can say is I'm an unbeliever and I prefer my sin. Right. Yeah. That's right. That would be more honest. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, it might lead you to Christ because one day you might decide right. you don't want to go to hell. Right. To come to Christ. Yeah, I remember for generations, there were people who said that the Hittite Empire didn't exist because the only place you found it was in the pages of the Bible. Well, now you have whole departments and colleges and universities dedicated to studying Hittite literature. Why? Because, like Bob pointed out, it was excavated. Uh, one thing I always point out to people, too, is not just predictive prophecy, but the very profundity of Scripture really pr proves its divinity. And when people say it's not divine, it's typically because they haven't studied it. Let me just give you one example, one that always just blows me away. is Remember in Acts 2.41, after the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes? Remember it says 3,000 came to eternal life? But remember, at the very first Pentecost, you had the giving of the law. And remember when they built the golden calf, how many perished? 3,000. So you have 3,000 at the first Pentecost perish when the giving of the law came, but 3,000 come to life at the Pentecost where the Spirit came. Well, you can't make that stuff up. That's profound. And it's that profundity, it's over and over and over that you see it the more you study it. So when someone says the Bible is the most overrated book, like Bob said, it's because they haven't studied it. It is. It just blows you away the more you, the more you read it. Now, one thing I want to point out is Bob is exactly right that this idea, the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy, also means that it's an objective genitive. In other words, it's not just that prophecy comes from the source being Jesus, that Jesus is the source of it, but it's also about him. And one passage that speaks to that is John 15, 26. Notice Jesus talking about his departure and the coming of the Spirit. He says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, what will he do? He will testify about me. So about me, it's about him. That's what prophecy is about. And so that's one thing that we've tried to, Bob and I have tried to show in here, is that the true work of the Spirit always brings about the testimony of Jesus. When I was a new Christian, I was about 20 or 21, I went to a revival meeting, and I have to say there wasn't very good theology there. And I didn't know any better. Well, the pastor that went up there, his name was Doug Stanton. Many of you probably have heard that. I heard some gasps. Well, I remember in the, meet, the, begin, the beginning of the meeting, he stuck his head in the fern, a fern bush. There was a fern bush on stage. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a little peculiar. You know, I'm a brand new believer. I'm trying to understand the word. And he said that that was a work of the Spirit. 
Well, later when you start getting your theology down, you say, well, wait a minute, the work of the Spirit according to John 15, 26 is where you have the testimony of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, why we need him, how we receive him. It's all about Christ. That's a true work of the Spirit. So if you're listening to some Bible teacher over time and you never hear about the work of Christ, who he is and what he's done, it's not the work of the Spirit. Um, we had a Bible study one time for teenagers, and I remember there was a, a group, they helped teenagers out of drugs and alcohol, which is wonderful, Teen Challenge. Well, this particular individual, this kid, he gave a testimony, but it was all about him, and there was nothing really said too much about Jesus. Well, that's not a work of the Spirit. And I was the one who invited him. So I'm learning too. I said, wait a minute, unless you testify about who Jesus is and what he's done, you're not giving a testimony. And so from that point on, if someone says, hey, I want to give a testimony, I say, okay, but it's going to be about who Jesus is, who he is, what he's done. Otherwise, it's not a valid work of the Spirit. Okay, now you can talk about what God has done in your life, that's fine, but unless Christ is confessed, you know, someone might say, hey, I was uh, an atheist and I was living the wrong way and I became a Mormon and look how much better I'm living now. Are we going to say, well, praise God? No. The Mormon Jesus is a different Jesus. If we have a different Jesus, we have a different gospel, and we're anathematized according to the Apostle Paul. So a true work of the Spirit has to do with the confession of Christ. So, okay, now, again, this passage is significant. Revelation 19.10, only God is to be worshipped. Jesus is God because clearly he's worshipped. Those are some uh, things I want you to remember from Revelation 19.10. So now I want to move on to our next PowerPoint. I can't believe it. We made it. <laughs> All right, let's go on to our next one here. Whoops, I put up Romans, sorry. There we are. I got it here. So now we're moving on to Revelation 19.11 through 16. Now, this is going to be focusing on the description of Christ. As Christ returns at the end of the 70th week of Daniel to set up his kingdom, remember he's going to demolish his enemies that are surrounding Jerusalem, but he's also going to save his people. He's going to establish his kingdom in Israel. Well, here in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, you were given a description of Christ that comes on a white horse. And this description is very important because the description is so different from the rider that comes on the white horse in Revelation 6, the Antichrist, that enables us to distinguish this must be the true Christ. So that's what we want to focus on now as we look at the description of Christ. But before we do that, I want you to remember that here we see the culmination of all the battles that will come upon earth. That's the final battle where the Messiah sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. Remember that's prophesied in Zechariah 14. And he defends Israel as a warrior does in the day of battle. Now, I want to show you a connection on the screen to Revelation 12. Now, the reason I'm doing this is I want you to understand that there's a war in heaven, and there's also a war on earth. And I want you to tie that into Revelation 19. The war on earth finishes at the end of Revelation 19. That's where it's going to be done. So let's read Revelation 12. This will give us a reminder. Verses 7 through 9. It says, And there was a war in heaven... Michael, remember Michael the archangel, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon, remember, Satan. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. 
And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, notice here when he's thrown down to the earth, that brings warfare to the earth. And I believe this happens at the great tribulation, the three and a half year mark. So that's when Israel is going to be persecuted. Remember, they're hidden in the wilderness for 1,260 days. Well, how long is that? Well, it's three and a half years. So it's that three and a half year mark where you have the great tribulation. It's called Jacob's great distress, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And that's the time period where there's unparalleled warfare on the earth. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. So I want you to tie that idea into Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is the culmination of that war on the earth. War in heaven, sometime during the 70th week of Daniel, Satan's cast out, war on the earth engulfing Israel, three and a half years culminating by Jesus returning to fight for his enemies, or fight against his enemies, and to fight on behalf of his people. So make that connection. All right, so with that, let's look at the description of Christ. Revelation 19, 11 through 13, John says this. He says, And I saw heaven opened. Wow. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, one issue that arises in the interpretation of this text is the rider on this white horse. The question is, who is he? Because remember, back in Revelation 6, we also saw a rider on a white horse. Now, turn your Bibles back to Revelation 6. I want you to read that. And notice on the screen here, as you're turning to that, this connection to the white horse. We have Revelation 6, rider on the white horse. Revelation 19, rider on the white horse. But what we're going to see are there are distinctions between them that are very pronounced. Revelation 6, verses 1 through 2. I'll just read that far. Notice it says, Then I saw, remember this is the beginning of the tribulation period, the beginning of the 70th week. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now notice right away, heaven isn't opened up to allow this rider to ride about. That description isn't given. But I also want to point out something that Dana had pointed us to, and that is that this rider on the white horse had a bow. I was very intrigued by this idea of a treacherous or a lying bow that Dana had brought up in our class. And so I want to turn to it and show you the connections, why that may be significant regarding the Antichrist. So please turn your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 78, verses 56 through 57. Again, Psalm 78, 56 through 57. The reason we want to turn there is you would see a description of a bow. And it's called either a treacherous bow or sometimes it's called a deceitful bow in our different English versions. But I want to unpack that. Um, who had the Psalm 78 passage? Oh, Clodoris did. Great. We'll have Clodoris read uh, Psalm 78, 56 through 57. But they... T- 
but they rebelliously tested the Most High God, for they did not keep his decrees. They treacherously turned away like their fathers. They became warped like a faulty bow. Wow, very good. Now notice her adjective in her English version of the bow was a um, faulty bow, right? Yes. Now some of your versions will have treacherous, some will have deceitful. They're wrestling with a term in the Hebrew, rim-iyah, rim-iyah. Now rim-iyah has to do with a bow that is actually slack. Now why would that be a problem? Well, can you imagine you're an archer and you're trying to use this bow that's slack? Well, a lot of times slack bows, they end up hurting you rather than the one you're trying to hurt, which would be your enemy. So this idea of a slack bow, a faulty bow, is the idea that it's, there's something not right about it. It's useless. And so right away, the idea isn't so much deceit in the sense of lying. It can be that, but it can also be just worthless. Um, and now when that's ascribed to the Antichrist, I want you to think about that being like a faulty bow he doesn't really have the power that he claims to have. That might be part of the imagery as well. Not only is he treacherous and deceitful, but he's like a slack bow who doesn't function correctly. Now, the reason I say that is because in Hosea, um, you also had the Hosea passage? Yes. We have Hosea 7.16 where the prophet Hosea likens Israel when they were in idolatry and rebelling against Yahweh as a treacherous bow. Go ahead and read that. They turn, but not to what is above. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of the cursing of their tongue. They will be ridiculed for this in the land of Egypt. Yeah, thank you. So think about it. Israel was likened to being a faulty bow. Okay, so God couldn't use them. It showed really that militarily and spiritually they were impotent. Okay, in fact, listen to the great scholar on the book of Hosea, Dwayne Garrett. And by the way, he used to, uh, he wrote my Hebrew grammar book. He used to work at Bethel back when they uh, cared about theology. (laughs) Um, But listen to what Dwayne Garrett said. He says, quote, Hosea obviously employed two related terms in the bow and the sword, but he used them in different ways. He said, the slack bow is metaphorical for the lack of diligence and hence the military uselessness of the Israelite leadership, unquote. Again, like a slack bow that ends up hurting you rather than your enemy. That's the way Israel was in the hands of God because of their idolatry. So with that connection, perhaps there's something with the Antichrist having this bow. He's more impotent than he realizes, and he's also treacherous and deceitful. So I want to thank, I don't know if Dana's even here, but he was the one who made that connection. So I just wanted to give him kudos for that. All right, now, that's one of the differences. Now, what I'm going to do is give you eight differences between the true Christ that we see here in Revelation 19 and the false Christ in Revelation chapter 6. Now, the first difference that we see is the Antichrist actually causes further wars to come about, whereas, okay, I'm sorry, we got a question here. Um, I I just want to say uh, uh, Revelation 6 there, they talk about the white horse you sat on it I think I heard sometime that there's even some scholars who actually think that that was Jesus Christ have you heard that exactly Lonnie and that's exactly right so that's why we want to distinguish between Revelation 6 here and Revelation 19 because what I want to show you is I'm going to give you eight reasons why there's differences between the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 
and the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6. So I'm going to give you eight differences that show us the one in Revelation 19 must be Jesus. Uh, The first big difference is, again, the Antichrist, when he comes in in Revelation 6, he causes further war. In other words, at the fourth seal, he comes in at the first seal, at the the fourth seal, you have such devastation that you lose 25% of the earth's population. But Jesus, on the other hand, after he wipes out his enemies, he causes peace to come about. Okay, so what does the Antichrist bring? More warfare, more warfare. Well, Jesus comes, fights, puts an end to it, and then he brings peace. A great passage that talks about this is found in Psalm 46, 8 through 9. Please turn your Bibles there. This is what the Messiah is going to do. By the way, as you turn your Bibles to Psalm 46, 8 through 9, this is really synonymous with what the prophet Isaiah was saying. He said the same thing in Isaiah 2. Remember where Christ the Messiah is going to beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. Well, we have the similar idea here. Psalm 46, 8 through 9. Listen to the result of the work of the Messiah. It says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. That's the work of the Messiah. That's what happens after this final battle. He brings peace. Yes, he's a great warrior, but he subdues all of his enemies. But that's not what the Antichrist did. Revelation 6, on you see more war. We're not going to see that after Revelation 19. So Messiah, the true Christ, makes war to cease. False Christ makes more warfare. Difference number two. Notice this second underline here that we have. The Messiah is depicted here as being faithful and true. Now, this is a description that rightly belongs to God alone. In fact, turn your Bibles to Revelation 21.5. I want you to see that this is a description of the one who is on the throne. He's faithful and true. Therefore, it can't be applied to the Antichrist. Revelation 21.5. John says that he who sits on the throne, that's obviously God said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. So here God is the one with the words faithful and true. Well, Jesus is the one faithful and true. Okay, now, no such description belongs to the Antichrist in Revelation 6. He's never described as that. Now, notice it also says that in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Now, that's not how the Antichrist wages war. Think of this distinction. The true Christ wages war in righteousness. False Christ, Revelation 6, wages war on the righteous. Big difference. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 11. This is a clear reference to the Messiah. This is fun, by the way, because we get to see all these references in the Old Testament to the Messiah. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 11, verses 3 through 4. Isaiah 11, verses 3 through 4. Talking about the Messiah, it says, He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he sees, his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But notice what it says, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now, dear ones, notice with righteousness the Messiah 
is going to wage war. That's exactly what's happening here in Revelation 19. And yet in Revelation 11:7 and Revelation 13:7, we see that the Antichrist wages war in unrighteousness. So again, a huge distinction. That's number three. Now, number four, notice here in verse 12, notice Christ's eyes are a flame of fire. Now, why would they be depicted as a flame of fire? The idea is that nothing escapes his notice. The idea is that he sees everything that we are, even the motives of the heart. That's what we see, for example, in Jeremiah 17.10, that God alone is the knower of the heart. Well, if Jesus is depicted as the one with eyes of flames of fire, that means he can know all things. He's also the knower of the heart. But no such description is ever given of the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6. So the point is, this one's omniscient. He knows all things. He's a knower of the heart. Fifth difference. Notice there are many diadems on his head. Now, diadems are often associated with the right to rule. Now, to be fair, the Antichrist and the beast are also depicted as having diadems. But what's interesting in Revelation 13, the description shows us that when the diadems are on their head, there's only one on each head. Okay? Well, here, notice the plurality of diadems. They're heaped upon this Christ. Why? Because the rider in Revelation 19 really, truly has the right to rule. Notice the sixth difference. Sixth difference here between the rider in Revelation 19 and the rider in Revelation 6. It says that there was a name, notice in Revelation 12, or excuse me, 19.12 there. Does everyone see that? It says there was a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Now, what's interesting is you'll have people who will actually speculate as to what that name is. <laughs> that's a fool's errand. <laughs> Only Jesus knows it. So that's, <laughs> remember in John, Matthew 24, 36, when he says, no one knows the day or the hour? And then people try to guess the day and the hour when he's coming. It's a fool's errand. Nobody, no one can know this. Now, what's very interesting, though, is we see in the Old Testament this concept that God with the greater authority often doesn't reveal his name to a human subject. Now, we see this in two places, that the one who has higher authority has the right to withhold his name. We see it in Genesis 32, 29. Just jot these down. We won't read them. That's where Jacob was wrestling with the angel of Yahweh. But we also see it in Judges 13, 18, where Samson's father, Manoah, was wrestling with the angel of Yahweh. And in both cases, both Manoah and Jacob had asked the identity of the one they were wrestling with, and when they're wrestling with the angel of Yahweh, and the angel of Yahweh doesn't give it to them. He withholds it. In fact, let me just read what he says. He says, Jacob says, why, or he says, please tell me your name, and the response is, why should you ask my name? And he blessed him there. This is from Judges 13, 18. Manoah wants to know his name. It says, but the angel of Yahweh said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it as wonderful? So in both cases, you have the one who is of higher authority withholding his name. So the point being is he's doing the same thing here. There's a name that he has that only he alone knows. Now, notice the seventh difference between the Antichrist and the true Christ is we see in red in verse 13 that his clothes are dipped in blood. No such description is given of Antichrist. Now, to be fair... In Revelation 1.5, Revelation 5.9, Revelation 7.14, and Revelation 12.11, 
the clothe dipped in blood applied to Jesus has to do with his atoning sacrifice, that he is the lamb who was slain so that our sins may be passed over. However, here, I think the idea that his robe is dipped in blood is an allusion to Isaiah 63, where the Messiah has blood in his garment, but it's not his own. It's the enemies that he's trotting down like grapes in a wine vat. That's the imagery here. So here, the sacrificial lamb isn't being depicted, but the warrior lamb. And I'm going to show you that on the next slide. I'll actually put up Isaiah 63. But there's one final thing I want to point out. Notice the description of this one who rides on this horse. He's described as the very word of God. Now, that is obviously not a description of the Antichrist. Remember in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. He is the one who exegetes and explains who God is, according to John 1.18. I'm sorry, we had a, looks like a question over here, or Steve? No? Oh, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I thought I, I'm seeing things again. It's not a true vision, though. I'm not claiming to be a prophet. <laughs> okay, any comments or questions? So all of these descriptions show us that the rider in Revelation 19 on this white horse has to be Christ, not Antichrist, in Revelation chapter 6. Now, let's focus, though, for a moment on verse 13, where it says that his robe was dipped in blood. I want you to see the Old Testament reference to this. And it has to do with this warrior Messiah being depicted in Isaiah 63. Now, before I put this passage up, you and I have to get our mindset into what life was like in Israel. Remember in Israel, they were a walled city in Jerusalem. And oftentimes, they had to have lookouts or watchmen on the wall looking for coming invaders. Now, it's interesting, Israel today still has to do that. They just do it with radar and outposts, etc. But in antiquity, the outposts were on the wall. So you had these watchmen. And so what's being depicted here in Isaiah 63 is a watchman from Jerusalem sees this mighty one coming from the south, from the area of Edom. Now, why is it significant that he sees him coming from Edom? Remember, where did the Edomites come from? They're descendants of Esau. Esau was the one who was cursed while Jacob was blessed. Esau was always bitter towards Israel, towards Jacob. And so the Edomites here in Isaiah 63 represent all of the enemies of God. They are the enemies of God par excellence. That's why it's so significant that this watchman sees this mighty warrior coming from the area of their enemies. But what's he doing? And this watchman on the wall is going to ask these questions, and it's fabulous writing. Listen to how it goes. Isaiah 63, 1 through 4. The writer says, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? Now, Basra was their capital of Edom. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. That's the reply. Wow. Now, the next question, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? Stop there. That's our connection to Revelation 19.13. The Messiah, as he wages war, his clothes are dipped in blood. Why? It's the vengeance on his enemy. It's directly linking us to Isaiah 63.2. 
That was the purpose of it. Now, notice the, the question is answered by the Messiah here in Isaiah 63, 3. He says, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Notice down in verse 4, this idea of vengeance and redemption are all tied to this idea of him waging war. Redemption for us. Remember the great reversal. You and I are being afflicted and hated and persecuted by the unregenerate now. That's all going to be remedied when Christ returns. But notice there's also going to be vengeance upon his enemies. And so that's the description of the Messiah. He's dipped in the blood of his enemies. That's what a fierce warrior he is. Now, how many in here... Christy's got something here. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Would this be after the final battle then, like Armageddon? Yeah, exactly. That's why I see it as, um, so you have the 70th week of Daniel, Mm -hmm. no signs preceding it, tons of signs within, and the last thing within it is this battle of Armageddon where Jesus returns, and that's called the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, but in both Malachi 4, 5, and in Joel 2, I forget the, I think it's 2, 28, somewhere in there, 231 perhaps, you have this reference to the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Well, the context there, the great and terrible day of Yahweh is usually reserved for the 24-hour period mm-hmm. where Messiah himself comes with his feet and wipes out the enemies of, of Israel. Okay, so that's when this is happening. It's the same thing in Joel 3. The context is where God brings all the enemies down to surround Jerusalem, and that's when he wages war against them. So that's the timing, the very end of the 70th week. So when we were in Israel, we looked down the Jezreel Valley at Megiddo area, but this doesn't seem like it would be the same location if it's from Edom being further south. What? Yeah, Do I just have my geography wrong? No, 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 you're good. Um, Remember, that this is describing the last battle that happens in Jerusalem. And so in Isaiah 63, the issue isn't so much geography. The issue, the focus, it's, it's a metaphor. Because the, the idea of Edom, Edom's already been wiped out, by the way. The Edomites don't exist. So why is he picking up on Edom again? Well, Edom obviously represents something. Because they're the descendants of Esau, they represent all the enemies of God. The enemies of God par excellence. So what we're to do is to metaphorically understand that this vision that's given to Isaiah is he sees a watchman on the wall in Jerusalem and he sees this mighty warrior coming from the prototypical enemies of God and yet he's had victory. It's designed to show us that one day the Messiah is coming back. So that's the whole point. It's not necessarily a geographical issue. It's more of a theological issue, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of... Uh, well, so I was thinking about something kind of interesting, I, I, I think... Um, so it's like Doug Stanton. I've also been to him. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, I didn't. Okay. But okay. Um, anyways, I, I, so I was thinking about he really goes off on the spiritual side. I mean, to the point where I'm like, I, I almost didn't even want to, you know, be there because I'm thinking, is this, you know, demonic? And then here he is, and I can't quite pin something on him. It's like he goes too far, like sticking his head in a fern. I don't, yeah. I don't know. But on the other hand, I, I see over here, and I'll, I'm just going to be honest. I, sure. I don't mean any offense, but like um, praying in the spirit, I, I see, 
you know, that we go maybe not as far at all because I, I look at like praying like, but when the apostle, I think it was Peter or Paul was stuck in a prison, it says, here it says, uh, uh, many were gathered together and were praying uh, and he knocked on the door. I, I mean, this is when he got out late at night, it says the angel woke him up and here's a group of believers that are praying and it's like late at night, you know, together, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I see some, there's definitely like, there's a fervorance and, and like revelations. There, it doesn't say that we're not going to have a revelation. You know, it doesn't say that, um, like even Jesus, it says, was heard because of his loud and fervent uh, prayers. And it, it, there's just like over there, they're like seeking God too far in the spirit. Over here, it seems like we've almost, you know, like thought, no, it's just the word and there's no spirit. And I'm kind of just thinking about that. Like, you know, yeah, and I know that. There's one other thing I wanted to say. Oh, yeah. Um, the other thing was, I remember Daniel, and this, this to me, it's like God is not a God of confusion. He's Sorry, not so a God of chaos. But I remember when Daniel got this prophecy of revelation, it said he turned white. And um, it's like, you know, it's not everything God does we do understand. I just kind of was keeping that in my mind, too, that he, he teaches us he's a God of order, but wow, some of the stuff, like, you know, it's like, I, I, want, I don't want to go too far one way or the other. I just want to know. Yeah, let's, let's break yeah. two things down. First of all, let's talk about what it means to be in the Spirit. And then let's talk about whether these passages that you're reading from in the book of Acts are descriptive or prescriptive. First of all, let's talk about being in the Spirit. In the Spirit and praying in the Spirit isn't an, um, an ecstatic experience, but being in the Spirit means in the sphere of of the work of the Lord and the work of the Spirit. So, for example, we were baptized in the Spirit, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that physically I felt something, but truly I'm in the sphere of the living God. And so praying in the sphere of the Spirit would be doing that which is consistent with what the Spirit has revealed in Scripture, okay? So we just saw in John 15, 26 that the Spirit operates through the Scripture. He confesses of Christ. Now, the other thing I want to point out is within your Acts passages that you're citing, we should remember many of these passages are descriptive of what the apostles did, but they're not prescribed for us. Let me give you an example that differs from the apostles. Think about when Christ walks on water. Well, in Job, it says uh, Yahweh alone is the one who treads down the waves of the sea. So when Jesus walks on water, I don't see that as a prescription for me to do it. I see it descriptive of what he did. And you and I have to remember that the apostles were being affirmed by God as his spokesman by the miraculous deeds that they had done. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it points out this is one of the qualifiers of them being an apostle is they did miraculous deeds. And so sometimes what I think Christians do is they look at the book of Acts and they see what the apostles did. For example, Peter's shadow fell upon those who were ill. Well, that demonstrated that he was a spokesman for God. If my shadow falls upon someone now, it isn't going to do him a hill of beans worth of good, Right. So there, that's a descriptive passage, but it's not prescribed for me to walk by and allow my shadow to fall upon someone. So my whole point is I think you're reading some of those passages in a prescribed way when they're really meant for a descri- uh, description rather than prescription. Does that help? So fervency in the Lord doesn't have to do with uh, the amount of hours that you put in. It has to do with drawing near through faith in Christ. And being in the Spirit means that we are consistent with what the Spirit has revealed through the Scriptures. And so that's what fervency in the Lord has to do with. Now, you and I are commanded by Scripture to pray without ceasing. 
We're also to never forsake the assembling together, but there is liberty as to how often those things occur. So, for example, let's say we had the Lord's Supper. That's another means of grace. If we had that once a month or once every six months or once a week, we're not sinning. There's liberty there. Okay, it's never uh, prescribed to us how often. When it says pray without ceasing, the implication is we have a life that's characterized by prayer. But again, it's not how often. So don't let anyone fool you regarding fervency. There are some people who are Muslims who probably more fervently are on their knees than Christians, and yet they couldn't be further away from God. Yes, they, they are on their knees. They're, they're just absolutely fervent. And yet they're on the trajectory of hell because they believe in a God who you die for and kill for rather than the God who sacrificed his own son for us. Okay, So being in the Spirit has to do with being in the truth found in the Scripture as the Spirit reveals it, not in some form of fervency that's subjective. So I hope that helps, Eric. Yep, And, and I would stay away from um, Doug Stanton. Um, okay, well, you know what? I'm sorry, we're out of time. But um, I would stay away from Doug Stanton, Eric. Um, he's not a, a teacher that testifies to Christ. And I would really stay away from him. He distorts more things than he makes clear. So, yeah. All right, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are coming again to redeem us, to save us from your coming wrath. But we also thank you, Lord, that you will be the one who executes judgment upon your enemies. We thank you for both. Um, Lord, we thank you that you have given us salvation through faith alone and Christ alone, and that by your poured out word we may know you and we may know what you required of us. I pray for my brothers and sisters that the words from Revelation would comfort them and help them persevere until the day you break through the clouds for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.